You are listening to The Vincast, Australia's premier wine podcast. As a completely free of charge weekly podcast, The Vincast needs your support. But the great news is that it doesn't require any financial support. All you need to do is spread the love. So you can do that uh, via social media, tweet about the podcast, share it on Facebook, even Instagram. Uh, You can uh, send me feedback. You can suggest some guests you might like to hear from. But really important is to uh, subscribe to the podcast on any of your podcast hosting apps, uh, particularly iTunes, and give the podcast a five-star rating and a review because that really does provide feedback to potential guests and potential listeners uh, who are wine lovers just like you. So thank you to everyone who has uh, got in contact with me and shared shared their experiences of the podcast. Uh, And thanks again to people who uh, have rated and reviewed the podcast on iTunes. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. On episode 88 of the Vincast, I chat with Ian Riggs, iconic Hunter Valley winemaker at Brokenwood Wines, and also the most important person behind the Len Evans tutorial. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and thank you for listening to this week's episode. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed recent episodes. I've had some fantastic guests, and uh, I've seen a bit of a spike in the number of downloads and listens to the website of the podcast. I hope you have been enjoying it. Um, and thank you to those who have got in contact with me because uh, um, I love hearing from you. I'm particularly interested to know where people are listening to the podcast. Uh, firstly, if you're listening to it through the website or if you're downloading it and listening to it uh, on a, an iPhone or an Android device, I'm really interested to know um, what the location is you listen to it, whether it's on public transport or driving in your car or when you're at work. Uh, so please do get in touch with me. Uh, you can email me at thevincast at gmail.com or why not get in, con- in contact with me via intrepidwiner.com or on uh, social media uh, at intrepidwiner on Twitter. Let me know because uh, I'd love to hear. Now, this week's guest is uh, an iconic winemaker, uh, not just in he, in the Hunter Valley region, but uh, or Australia-wide, really. Uh, Ian Riggs, who has worked at Brokenwood Wines, uh, primarily based in the Hunter Valley, but also um, sourcing fruit uh, from other regions as well. Uh, and he's been there for quite a long time and, and knows the, uh, the ins and outs of uh, Semyon and Shiraz. Uh, and he's also one of the organisers, probably the main organiser of the Len Evans tutorial. So... When he was in Melbourne recently, we sat down and had a chat about his background and his uh, his views on Australian wine at the moment, and it was really, really interesting. I certainly learned a lot, and I hope you do too. Uh, stick around to the end of the episode so you can find out how to get in touch with both of us, but until then, I'll see you on the other side. Ian, welcome on the Vincast, someone I've, I've wanted to have on for a long time, but obviously being based up in the, the Hunter Valley, what you know? 
distance can be a problem. But finally, I've got you on, so thanks for coming on. Mate, thank you very much for uh, having me down and uh, doing this cast. How, you've been uh, in Melbourne this week uh, yes. with, um, with the trade and, yes. and maybe some media as well. How's the week been? Been very successful, very happy with it. Um, came in on Tuesday and um, went straight into a, a, a masterclass with the Australian Sommeliers Association at that fabulous place, uh, Harry and Frankie, mm. down in uh, Port Melbourne. Uh, Tom very kindly opened the, the premises and we had uh, oh, a good 15-odd people there. Yeah. And part of uh, what we were doing was looking at Beechworth as mm-hmm. a region, mm-hmm. even though we're Hunter Valley-based. We uh, planted a, a big vineyard in Beechworth in the late 1990s and uh, so they've got of age on them, you know, they've got about 17 years. And uh, so we're focusing on Beechworth as a region, not just our wines, everyone, mm. everyone's wines. Mm. Well, of course, I had um, a lovely Tess. Uh, she was talking about her yeah. background, of course. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of excitement about the Beechworth region, uh, particularly in Melbourne. Uh, and good. You know, I think, um, <laughs> I think wine writers are, are getting really excited as well because there seems yes. to be a lot of energy yes. uh, in that little region. But um, I usually start every episode of the podcast, as my listeners would know, by asking my guests if they can remember the first interaction that they had with wine that made them think about it in a different way and think about pursuing a career in the wine industry. Mm. Well, that one's easy because it's well documented that um, in 1970 uh, we were out to dinner. So 1970, I was only 15, <laughs> but um, or just turned 16, and um, had a 1970, uh, so it must have been late 70, 1970, Leo Buring DW110 Riesling, mm-hmm. that um, prior to that, because uh, we had lived in mid-north of South Australia, went to New South Wales, came back again, Stayed off at uh, the Riverland where my uncle and auntie both worked in two different wineries, mm-hmm. Wakery Co-op, where I started in 1972, and my auntie worked at um, uh, Ljubljana at Maruk. Yep. And back then it really was uh, hock, lime and lemon and, you know, mix of drinks and that sort of thing. And this was a, a table wine which really caught my interest and in, Was it dry or some residual sugar? Um that I can't remember. I don't think it was overly sweet. I don't think it was a spat lays. Yeah. Um, may have had some residual sugar, uh, but it really did open my eye. Yeah. Know, just, I mean, it was one of those sort of waiting moments. And I suppose it also been um, staying with Michael and Artie when we came back from New South Wales and, and just hearing talk about working in a winery. Sure. And so wine, because we had um, wheat, sheep, and then sheep property, and um, wine started to enter my consciousness in early 1970. Wow, okay. And and what were your studies at that time? Like, you, did you have any particular focus at high school at that point? No, no, no. Um, I was going to be an architect. Right, okay. Um, and I would imagine that you'd, you know, it seems to me 50% of winemakers, if they didn't, weren't winemaking, they were going to be architects. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that is. And that's very, yeah, um, particularly in Italy. Yes. And um, so we uh, came back, had two years at high school in uh, in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. So that's the only time I had lived in Adelaide. And then went to Rosewithy College, started right. there in 1972. Mm-hmm. And so 1972 was, in fact, my, my first time in a winery doing vintage. And from 1972, I worked every holidays right through because um, Rosewithy, my course back then, I did two years ag and two years wine. So I was there four years mm. and I finished at the end of 75 and he worked just every holiday. In fact, I didn't have a holiday for myself during that time. Every holiday was to earn money and work in a winery. Working was the holiday. Yes. 
Um, at the time, were, were students encouraged to focus on either agriculture or winemaking or was, were they expected to sort of do, mm, learn everything? No. Um, it, the two years ag was just a way of getting into the wine course which started every two years. Right, okay. And the other thing about my year, I think we were the last of the two-year courses or the second last of the two-year courses, um, Rose really started to change. It went from this very um, old-school, traditional, based on the English style of um, college, because mm. um, it was founded in the late 1800s, um, to a more modern, open campus. Mm -hmm. And shock horror, we actually had girls on campus for the first time in 1970. Five, I think it was. Wow. Um, that was uh, pretty, yeah, that was different. So um, <laughs> who, who were some of the people you were studying with? Um, so in my year, uh, Jeffrey Grosset mm -hmm. was in my year. Alistair Perbrick was in my year. Former guest. Uh, Kim Rayner, who's now in uh, New Zealand. He was the Rayner family, obviously, from McLaren Vale. Tony Devitt um, from Western Australia mm -hmm. was in my year. Uh, Andrew Wigan mm. was, in, was in my year. Um, Wayne Falkenberg was in my year. So some some very, very uh, smart um, winemakers. They weren't – some of them had already done degrees, so that was another change, apart from girls being on campus. Um, we actually had uh, post-grads coming in. Right. So um, they, these were – to us, these seemed like, wow, these were – particularly Tony Devitt, who was um, – so 1974, I was uh, – was I approaching twenty, and then Tony was like, you know, late late twenties. Mm. So, um, but he said, we all fitted in. We all went down the pub and drank and had a great time. Yeah, and uh, you know, re really, some people who quite um, seriously changed the face of you know yes, modern well, Australian was, wine. That's what I was going to lead on to. So, some of the my year, particularly um, was Bruce Redman, of course, um, really had a you know a bit of bit of an impact. Um, on the Australian wine scene with the wine styles and the wines they've made. Mm. Jeff Grosset, Andrew Wigan. Of course. Um, particularly Riesling. <laughs> mm. Yes. Uh, so where were you working, you know, in your so-called holidays? Um, Wakery Co-op in 72, 73. And then, and I don't have no idea except for Bill Potts from uh, the Potts family in Langhorne Creek, uh, you know, good mates, and... I don't, I don't know the exact timing, but probably the start of 74 or late 73, I then swapped my holiday work from Wakery down to, down to Langhorne Creek. Mm. And, um, that they, the Potts family, um, uh, were happy to have me on board. Jeff Scutchings was the winemaker. He married one of the, the Potts girls. So there was John Potts, who was the managing director of, of, um, and he had young sons who mm. are now running the business. But they were only you know, quite young back then, and I worked uh, as soon as I finished Roseworthy at the end of '75, straight into uh, winemaking at Bleasdale. Was appointed winemaker of the operation in '78, mm. and um, went right through to uh, middle of 1980. Wow. Okay. Um, at that point, were was there? Did we thinking about? Um sort of down the line what you might want to do in the wine industry or were you just sort of taking it all in and, and learning and enjoying the work? Taking it all in, um, I did know that by 1980 that the industry was moving on and, you know, I associated with a lot of guys, Jeff Merrill and, and um, Tim James and, and all those guys over at um, 
um, McLaren Vale mm-hmm. and, the, and the old generation, you know, Colin Kay and uh, Darry Osmond, etc. But knew the industry was changing, the industry was moving on, and that's uh, when uh, I was offered a job as a start at a startup winery called Hazelmere Estate in in um, McLaren Vale, now known as Serafino, micro winemaking. And um, Tony Jordan and Brian Crozer had a consultancy company called Enatech, mm-hmm. which still exists in name. Brian uh, sold that to uh, Tony Jordan, Tony Jordan of Domain Gendon fame. My old boss. And your old boss. There you go. And, um, uh, yeah, so I took the job at um, Hazelmere Estate. Okay. So what do you think was um, the, the, the really important things were changing the Australian wine industry at that time and, and, and the way that people had to kind of rethink their approaches to wine? White wine making, even though we'd had refrigeration, you know, stainless steel tanks, et cetera, for a couple of decades, white wine making changed and, and Brian Crozer really kicked it off in 1975 with the Hardy Siegersdorf Riesling, seven and a half grams of residual sugar and fresh as a daisy and really bright, vibrant. And um, with him, his work with uh, Charles Sturt and what uh, Wade was doing, um, Wade Institute, sorry, the... Um, uh, small-scale winemaking, so picking grapes into um, milk crates, chilling them in a um, cold room overnight, uh, use, clever use of sulphur so that you just didn't throw it all in at the start and then walk away and come back to the press two hours later. Mm. You added sulphur during the press cycle. Mm. And so the wines that uh, we made at um, Hazelmere, Semillon, Sauvignon Blanc, there was a blend, straight Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay, mm. Um, really made everyone sort of sit up and take notice because they were, and Riesling, really bright, vibrant and had great fruit expression. And it's had a pretty profound impact in the market with people kind of really embracing yep. that this yes. new style of white yeah, wine. Yeah, yeah, people still, you know, probably incorrectly refer to me as the founder of Sauvignon Blanc Semillon Blend because it was uh, two-thirds Sauvignon Blanc, one-third Semillon um, and sometimes vice versa, but generally... Um, less semillon, um, short time in oak, and then and bottled. Certainly, Tim Napstein and the Cullens were making a few May style in the in the seventies, mm. but this really f- upfront fruit style, um, we start we did start at, at Hazelmere. Then we uh, became quite famous for the Hazelmere eighty two Chardonnay, which uh, got me the Bushing King. Ward. It was the only white to win the Bushing King at the McLaren Vale Wine Show since. Mm. You're going to have to explain um, the, the Bushing King. Okay, the Bushing King is the um, uh, it's the, it comes out of the McLaren Vale Wine Show and it's for the champion wine of that wine show, that year's wine show. So it's sort of a little bit like the Jimmy Watson, except that's just for red. Um, it, well, it's, it can be uh, an older wine. It's a, it's sort of the most prestigious award. Yes, yeah, it okay. is, and then yeah. the Bushing. Festival in McLaren Vale is, you know, they have the robes, not too dissimilar to the Barossa. Mm. And the yeah, you, are the, you are the Bushing King for, the, for that for that year. And, um, yeah, there were no Do you rules. have to wear the robes for the full year? Then, <laughs> no, thankfully uh, I didn't. <laughs> um, uh, so, and that one then went on to win a trophy in Adelaide and then a trophy in Canberra and then it was sold out. Mm. So uh, that made people sit up and take notice. Certainly if it was the first white wine. Mm, my word. Um, so, uh, and again, how, how was the, the market changing? Were, were people thinking more about, you know, having wine with food? 
Was that concept kind of starting to kick in a little bit? Um, I think wine consumption was certainly going up. Sure. Um, the late 70s, for whatever reason, um, became a year of uh, the winemaker dictating everything that was done. So we had some pretty weird wines come Looking back, they were quite weird. Um, wines coming through in those late 70s, early 80s. Red wines were sometimes 10.5% alcohol, 11% mm. alcohol. Mm. Um, Kunawara was um, made with machine pruning and machine harvesting. And the 1980 St. George Cabernet was that really leafy, super herbaceous style of Cabernet, which everyone quickly loved and then everyone quickly hated. Mm. Um, and by 82 and then certainly by 84... Um, the Vitic, we, everyone realised that, you know, look, this is wrong. Winemakers don't di- dictate what happens in the vineyard. You know, that's why we have viticulturalists. Mm. And so the wine started to move up a bit in alcohol and uh, get back to full ripeness and balance in the vineyard. And certainly by 84 and then by 86, um, we had some great, some really memorable red wines coming out of um, coming out of Australia. Then, of course, much later into the 90s, we had the, the parkerisation of Australian wines. So we went from what was in 1980 some wines at 10.5% alcohol to wines at 16% alcohol. So mm. we had some we had a pretty, pretty wild ride for, through the 80s and 90s. In in those earlier days, did you have the opportunity to travel around much? Were you visiting other wine regions and kind of going yep. to, to learn yes, and, and, yeah. and see, you know, with, yeah, tricks of the trade? With, within, within Australia, the best place to learn and see wines was wine shows. Yeah, okay. Wine shows really govern change in uh, the way the winemakers thought about wine. Yeah. And uh, so, did was, you get yeah. involved as far as judging? Yes, I started, yep, started um, well, certainly in the late 70s in Adelaide, I was doing wine, ma- uh, wine magazine reviews and then um, went to um, Brokenwood, as I said, at the end of 82. And yeah, I was judging in uh, Associate Judge in Canberra at the end of 83. Mm. So, you've been at Brokenwood since then? Yep. Yep, just finished my 34th vintage. That's quite incredible. And 45th all up. Tell me a little bit about Brokenwood. Um, when was it originally established? Um, the, the first uh, four and a half hectare property was bought in uh, October 1970. Yep. And James Halliday, John Beeston and Tony Albert, three um, solicitors. Tony went on to, to the bar. Um, bought the property. I expected to pay three hundred odd dollars an acre for it, and ended up paying close to a thousand dollars because they didn't count on the neighbouring property also wanting that ten acre block because there's not there's not too many small blocks in uh, in the Pacolman region. Uh, it was covered in forest, so they said about clearing it. We've got the Broken Back Range as our backstop, clearing all the trees. The name Brokenwood came about. Mm-hmm. Planted it through um, early nineteen seventy one and picked the first grapes in seventy three. So the first vintage was then. Relied on um, friends and family to uh, provide all the labour, including winemaking, including um, pruning, harvesting, um, planting, mm. the whole lot. Had enough uh, friends that they could then expand the shareholding in 1978 to um, buy the graveyard vineyard from Hungerford Hill. And that was a 15-hectare block planted with a bit of um, Cabernet Merlot, think it might have had one small block of Chardonnay on it, or they pl- um, planted Chardonnay. Possibly a little bit more than $1,000 an, an acre? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
then uh, no, no, actually, I, I, that's a good point. I don't know what they paid for that, but it's interesting how the Hunter Valley cycle uh, changed so dramatically that people were clamouring for land in 1970, and yet it was Hungerford Hill that sold that block of land that yeah. they were selling off land. Yeah, um, eight years later. Interesting. Um, that's the the cycle of Hunter Valley changed quite dramatically, uh, and then. They, I think they were getting older and they were doing other things, the partnership that is. Sure. Getting sick of doing it themselves and needed, they had plans to expand Broken Wood because they had a really good name in the Sydney market and needed an, an employee. Right. So I was the first employee. So at the same time um, as Hazelmere Estate, so I made that 82 Chardonnay, Hazelmere, the owners of Hazelmere Estate, Hazelmere Estate was, uh, that company was uh, imploding. Broken Wood was looking for a winemaker. Mm. So... Tony again, Tony Jordan, Brian Crozer were involved, and I made the sort of transition from McLaren Vale to to the Hunter Valley. How was that? It was good. Yes, I'd lived in um, New South Wales uh, up on the Tablelands in the late uh, late sixties, so I knew you know sure. the area. Sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, Hunter Valley was pretty traditional. You know, there was I don't know how many companies, maybe a dozen companies. You know, there's now seventy odd. Uh, in the in the region, so it was quite small. Yeah, and we implemented the same system of winemaking that um, we used at Hazelmere. So I had to put in a cold room, picking into uh, milk crates. Everyone thought we were mad, and the nineteen eighty three Brokenwood Semillon was so dramatically different to what uh, anyone had seen before. Some loved it. The marketplace loved it. Um, traditional winemakers weren't so sure. Murray Tyrrell was very vocal about it. Mm. And when you say traditional, are these the kind of people who were probably influenced by people like Maurice O'Shea? Um, no, they just made they just made one style of semillon, which was generally um, low fruit to start with, but did build flavour as it aged. Yeah, okay. You know, as none of the young, picking it young early semillons then... never really made a big impact in the marketplace. Right. Okay. Um, and and so you got involved with uh, wine shows. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. How, how, how did you get into the wine show? Oh, well, Len Evans was, uh, you know, my mentor as was Halliday, and they were both uh, heavily involved in the Canberra wine show. So, so did you meet them when you went over to start working at Brokenwood? Um, Halliday, I met Halliday for the first time in mid '82. I had already met uh, Len in McLaren Vale in the late '70s, mm-hmm. so he already knew of me and. Um, and Len was in the process of uh, building his house in the Hunter Valley and moving lock, stock and barrel um, by about 86. And um, so he and I, he became, you know, we became great mates and played golf and formed the Hunter Valley Options Group, which is still going 27 years later. And um, for, the, yeah. for those who may not be familiar with the concept of options, could you just uh, quickly explain how options works? Yeah, it's a it's a competitive game. Sure. And um, Len formalised it, and so the Bulletin Place Front Row, which was Len's restaurant in Sydney, the Bulletin Place, every Monday they played options, and it was uh, then they they fine tuned the questions, five questions, um, and a maximum of three options within each one to keep count of your score. You lost twenty cents, so if you got one wrong, so you might start with, um, um, you know. 20 coins and what you've got left. So that's, you know, you can work out who the winner is. And uh, so there were quite strict rules around it and these evolved over the, over the, um, over the years. And then when you moved to the Hunter, we, we formed the Hunter Options Group and we've been playing it once a month ever since um, 1987. 
And how did Len get involved with wine show judging? Well, he is the doyen of wine show judging. He's mm. the godfather. Um, um, uh, John Fairbrother, John Fairbrother, was uh, Len's mentor, mm-hmm. and he was a great judge um, through the uh, 40s and, and 50s, and Len you know, got into wine in the 1960s and um, really put you know wine as something to enjoy with food and as an everyday part of life, you know, it became what, you know, his champion cause was. Mm. So when you um, came to Brokenwood, the idea was for you to completely manage everything, both yep. viticulture yes. and, yes. and winemaking. Yep. Yep. So what what changes, if any, did you make in terms of the vineyard work? Um, we started when... <laughs> The 1970s in, in the decade in in the Hunter was a very, very wet one. Right. And the, the agronomists and the, the guys who worked for the agriculture, Department of Agriculture, um, insisted that the only way to plant a vineyard was on contours to, because we had huge summer storms. But the only reason we needed to do that was they thought the only way to run a vineyard was to put a plough through it every second day. Okay. <laughs> so we've, we've got fo- these photos of um, the graveyard vineyard from the 70s and it looks like the Sahara Desert. There is not a blade of grass to be seen yeah. anywhere. Yeah. So you manage vineyards like that, of course you're going to get huge erosion and runoffs. Mm. So the Department of Ag guys were saying, oh, no, you've got to plow on contours and have all these big contour banks and collect all that and then return it back to the vineyard. Um. Almost immediately within the 80s, we started changing that way of thinking and leaving grass up and down the rows, which makes sense because you could actually go and pick grapes if it had rained and you had a, a, a grass swath through the middle. So that was a sort of a strange concept at the time? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, so then... As we started to replant the graveyard, we started to take out the contour banks and make longer rows and they weren't curved and put them in straight rows and mm. um, and not cultivate as often as we as we were doing. So small changes like that, small changes for pruning. It's, it's uh, our two vineyards were on clay, really low, low yield, low fertility. Mm. So the vines were pretty well self, self-managed. You, know, you couldn't leave too much fruit on. You had every spray spray regime correct because we do get summer rains. Sure. And uh, yeah, that sort of thing. Many apologies for interrupting this fascinating chat with Ian, but uh, you might have heard him mention James Halliday. Uh, if you didn't know who James Halliday was, apart from uh, establishing a number of wineries in different regions in Australia, he's also one of the most important uh, wine educators and wine communicators in Australian wine history. Uh, and he established Wine Companion, which was an annual guide to Australian wines, which evolved into uh, a regular uh, wine publication and also a fantastic resource uh, online, uh, which uh, has information about wineries, vintages, uh, and you know reviews and scores of 
thousands and thousands of wines. So um, as a special treat for supporters of this podcast, the guys at Wine Companion and their new magazine, Halliday, uh, they're offering you a 30% discount on any subscription package when you put in the special code INTREPID30. So please do go to winecompanion.com.au, have a look at some of the subscription packages and um, let them know that you heard about it through uh, the, the Vincast podcast. Uh, thanks to your Thanks for your support. Uh, and thanks for listening. So what was the split at the time as between sort of red and white wine? Um, when I started, it was 100% red. Really? Okay. Yeah, at Brokenwood. And that really was against um, the consumption pattern. Right. The Australian consumption pattern started to change in 1975 from 70 uh, red or 100% red almost and whites really started to make a big impact through um, in consumers' minds and purchasing ideas. Uh, and, yeah, but Brokenwood, so Brokenwood was out of kilter. So mm. my starting at Brokenwood was really to drive the white wine production. Mm. So were you um, grafting or were you planting new vineyards? Mm, no, there were, there, were white, there, were, there were white vineyards available to go and get contract grapes. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so we just bought in white grapes. And that was sort of when you, you took that approach that you – Sort of been well established for yeah, um, down in the McLaren Vale with um, the way you were making yes, the whites and so yes. that, and that made a pretty um, immediate impact. Yep, absolutely, yes. We the idea for broken wood back then was to um, uh, make a wooded Chardonnay and a wooded Semillon. Mm. I don't know why I thought, but anyway, that's what it was. And uh, in 1983, we made uh, we had two tanks of Semillon, and um, we looked at it and decided that that was too good to go into oak and was really worth bottling as a uh, standalone wine. We bottled that. That was 700 cases and then put it into the Sydney marketplace and within six months we bottled the other 700 cases, the other tank, and put a, <laughs> there was only a, a tiny amount left to go to oak. Mm. And um, we persisted with the oak semi-on. And it was a small quantity, and uh, 89 was the last vintage of that. And the production of Semillon, the unoaked Semillon, went from that initial 700 cases. Now our standard production is somewhere in the ten to 12,000 cases. Mm. And so did you have the opportunity to um, be sort of the ambassador for, for Broken Wood? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I was in the marketplace once a week, twice a week. How did you find um, – because – Today, I, I find it is still, certainly in Melbourne, um, there's a little bit of resistance against yeah, not in Hunter Sydney. Wine. Sid, Sydney's the, um, you know, the only reason the Hunter exists as a wine region is because Sydney's on the doorstep. Yeah, yeah, no question. And and with the, was there um, was it mostly being sold into you know hotels, restaurants, or were you selling a lot into? Was there much of a retail market for wine at that there was, point? There, oh yeah, yeah. And there were a lot of independents. You know, this was before sure. the big buy up of the chains. Yeah, um, but we had a huge success on premise. Right. Yeah, very much so. You know, Sydney in summer is a real outdoor seafood. And I remember calling on a young chef by the name of Neil Perry, <laughs> and he had um, Blue Water Grill in um, in uh, Bondi. Yeah, and uh, you know, putting Semillon, our young Semillon, on the on the menu there. So that was an important thing to be doing is establishing that kind of relationship with, you know, with um, restaurants, chefs. Yep, absolutely. Um, yes. Sommeliers was the sommelier wasn't quite a thing yet. Um, 
this, uh, yeah, there were. They were mainly chef operators, right, or owners, and you know they were they were front of front of house. So um, the the sommelier didn't have quite the power of make or break they do now, perhaps. Yeah, and and how was the hunter kind of evolving? Um, you know, in the sort of throughout the eighties and then into the nineties. Yeah, red red wine was still the major part, even though Semillon was a um, big production. Um, but the rise of Chardonnay was probably the major thing. Yeah, you know, um, the hunter went from being a Semillon and Shiraz region to being Chardonnay. So it was, Shiraz and that was reflective of just Australia wide. Yep. Yep. Everyone was planting yep. Chardonnay. You had the, the Rosemount factor. Sure. So Rosemount was in the Upper Hunter, and uh, that day that. Um, uh, the Premier of uh, New South Wales uh, said he was going to go home and have a glass of Rosemount Chardonnay. That was it. Sales just went ballistic. Oh. Mm. Um, how did Brokenwood evolve um, sort of moving into the 90s? Um, well, we had another um, stroke of good fortune in that come 1990, the growers that I used to take the fruit from in McLaren Vale when I worked at Hazelmere Estate rang me and said, well, you know, we've got this fruit available, Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon. Hmm. And the Sauvignon Blanc clone was an old clone and had a really good herbaceous character. So um, I said, um, yeah, yeah, let's um, have a crack at it because we could only make, so back then, only make so much Semillon and sell it as Semillon into the marketplace and um, then started making Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon. Hmm. Again, first... Um, uh, bottling was 700 cases in 1990, and it was just called Sydney Blanc Semillon. From and we always label where the where the group, uh, fruit was from. So this is McLaren so, Vale fruit. Yes, oh. and um, that production then grew to a peak of 36,000 cases, I think. Okay. So and then that has declined, obviously, with the uh, Savalanche, the impact of um, Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. But again, we own we own the the marketplace and the on premise with um, that Sauvignon Blanc Semillon in Sydney. And do you continue to make wine from McLaren Vale fruit? Yep, Brokenwood's uh, taken fruit from other regions since nineteen seventy eight. Mm-hmm. Australian wine industry's made blends of region winemakers have blended regions, you know, going back to the nineteen thirties, forties, and nineteen fifties. Sure. Um, so we recognise that the hunter has a particular climate and particular style of wine that it makes, so Chardonnay, Simeon, Shiraz. There are some other varieties. People make very good Cabernet, um, Sangiovese, um, nowadays Mavedra, Barbera. But we wanted, if we wanted to make a you know, great Pinot or a great Chardonnay or a, um, a great Cabernet, we had to go outside, outside the region, mm. which we did do. We've also developed our own um, vineyard with a sister syndicate at Beechworth, and that supplies us with about 200 tonne of really top-notch um, fruit across a big spectrum, Pinot, Cabernet, Shiraz, Chardonnay, but also um, uh, Tempranillo, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, Pinot mm-hmm. Gris, and um, that's a really important region for us, the Beechworth. McLaren Vale still important, um, and Orange is the other premium cool climate region that we um, source fruit from. Is the Beechworth estate the only other one that's owned by Brokenwood? Well, it's a sister syndicate and there's a couple of um, common shareholders. Right, okay. Uh, but yes, the rest are um, uh, contract growers. Mm-hmm. So w- was the um, Beechworth vineyard planted or was it purchased? 
Um, the land was purchased. We went in search of a, a premium region and purchased uh, by a sister syndicate, a syndicate put together. Sure. And we uh, consulted on all the plantings and um, how it should be run. And uh, away we went. What was it that brought you to the Beechworth region? Um, soil, climate, water, and ge- geoconda was up the road. Sure. And we you know, drank a lot of geoconda. And um, what was the initial? What were the initial decisions about planting there? Um, well, we knew we, had, we knew we had to have Chardonnay. Sure. Um, we thought the 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 site was a bit different to Geoconda because I think, and Rick will probably admit this, that Pinot and Cabernet is okay in that region, mm-hmm. but I think other varieties are better. So, but we did put Pinot when we put Cabernet in, put Shiraz in, and. Um, the Chardonnay, Shiraz, Pinot Gris—they're just killing it down there, and we've we're now getting better clones of Nebbiolo, of Sangiovese, of um, Tempranillo top grafting. We had Viognier in there in the early years. You know, the best thing we did was put a bulldozer through that, mm. um, and no, Cabernet, and and uh, I think there's a little bit of Roussan there that the syndicate wanted, still growing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing was we had to plant what clones we had available to us this was 17 years ago sure and we're now getting better clones so particularly first, in terms of the, the alternative varieties yes yeah so um the first sangiovese the sangiovese and we've still got it is um the uh, carlo Cruno clone from from mudgy mm-hmm. uh, from montrose and now we've got a, a brunello clone which is just terrific mm. um we've got a better nebbiolo clone we've got better um uh, Pinot Gris clones, mm-hmm. yeah. so it's uh, it's really charging for us. So I can imagine, um, particularly this time of year during the vintage, you um, would would do a bit of travelling, you know, particularly yep. if you're looking at you know fruit yes. from other regions. Yes, yeah. Luckily, I've got two cracker winemakers at the moment. Steve Horton, uh, Stu Horton is our um, senior winemaker, and Kate Sturgis, um, assistant winemaker. Stu took over from Simon Steele, who. Um, most people would know from Shadowfax days, and he's now ensconced at Medhurst in the Yarra yep. and making some cracking wine. Yeah. Well, Matt Harrop himself. Matt was our winemaker in 74, 76, mm. 74. I'm getting my dates all confused. 94, 95, mm-hmm. 96. Mm. And um, tell me, Len Evans Tutorial. Yep. How did that uh, get established? Um, Len wanted to um, establish a, a wine school that, would really focus on style as opposed to technical quality. Australian wine wines and the Australian wine industry has benefited hugely from the wine show system, particularly through the 70s and 80s, in ridding wines of just common faults. Right. Um, whether it be uh, as basic as Macaptan, as more complex as Britannomyces, um, volatile acidity, etc. That was a very technical Sure. Sense. There were some style judges. Len himself was a style judge. He drank widely from Europe and, and all over the, the world, as was, was Halliday. But the, for the most part, the senior wine show judges were winemakers. Mm. So Lynn wanted to broaden the spectrum of judges available and the best way to do it was to start start a wine school. So he ranked 12 of wine remates and um, said, right, I need $7,000 from you. This is what we're going to do. No one said no. Mm-hmm. And it's held in the Hunter every November, this year's coming up, just about to advertise for applicants for this year, which will be our 
16th year of um, the Tute. So 12 lucky scholars go up and spend a week immersed in wine, seeing some of the greatest wines um, you know, from the world. We've got such great sponsorship as from like uh, DRC, um, Aubert de Villain sells us a um, uh, 14 bottles. We don't get the Chardonnay, <laughs> we get all the reds. So now from um, 09, the seven red vineyards mm-hmm. um, and two bottles of each at cost price. Mm. So that's an enormous benefit. That's very generous. And we've got some great sponsors, so we're able to source some great wines. And I think we have been responsible in in getting style judges and even the winemaker judges that are so prominent in the wine show judging system. And I think of um, uh, Sam Conyu and uh, Tom Carson, Dave Bicknell, PJ Charteris, Jim Chatto. They went to the system, but there's some great sommelier judges as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan Dan Sims, Philip Rich, um, Tom from uh, Tom Hogan, Harry and Frankie. Adam um, Cottrell. Yeah, everyone, you know, they're, they're making a big impact. And it's good. Mm. It's good. So um, he, he, Len actually started it sort of informally? No, no, no. It was very, you know, it was all set up and quite structured. Okay. Um, we had, had masterclasses um, on, uh, on Prestige Champagne, on, on Riesling, on Bordeaux, um, on Rhone varieties. The judging is 30 wines served blind. Um, yeah. We do Rhone varieties, Bordeaux varieties, um, Chardonnay and Pinot. And, um, yeah, just talk about the wines. And they judge blind. We talk about the wines. And then out of that we have a, a system of measuring how far off our score the scholars are. And then by the end of the week we can arrive at the Ducks and the Ducks gets a business return business trip to, to Europe. So, so the idea is to essentially train wine show judges or just yep. judges yes. in general? Well, judges in general. Um, we found those first six, seven years we, we put some terrific judges into the, into the system. So we, then we kind of backed off that a little bit more focusing on training or giving some great training to sommeliers, mm. to wine writers, to retailers, to restaurant owners. Yeah. Um, you know, anyone we thought would make an impact in conveying what the message of quality wine right. through to consumers. Sure. And other winemakers and other journalists, et cetera. So that was um, very successful. We've kind of swung back to um, making sure that our 12, we have a, a good number of winemakers in the 12. Yeah. Because the reality is that um, the wine industry and winemakers uh, still form the bulk of the wine show judging panels. And, you know, people complain. I'm not sort of saying wine judging is the only way to to judge quality. But, uh, you know, to have the people available to, to take a week out of your um, out of your work schedule here and there. Mm. So um, we've got some, yeah, terrific people coming through. And rather than just sort of looking at wine from a technical perspective and just to sort of make sure that it's varietally correct and that kind of thing, it's, it's talking more about... Um, what what is a, you know a, an ideal example? Are, are we looking at? I'm assuming you know when you look at different great varieties, you're looking at examples from you know what are considered to be the best parts of the world. Yeah, and Len started this when um, he would host his chairman's dinners. You know, he would always 
have um, great examples, and not just ones from overseas, but examples of great Australian wines sure, from course. the 40s and 50s and yeah. 60s, um, as to try and get uh, the young judges to um, think outside the square. Mm-hmm. You know, So this is a great Bordeaux. Well, this is a great example of, of Burgundy. This is DRC. You know, how do we see that in the wines that we see in the wine show? Does it mean, you know, and when you find that, that great one and it gets promote and go through and maybe get the trophies, you then trace back where it's grown mm. and what was the winemaking technique. Mm. You know, what did what did that person do do different that made it such a a distinctive wine? And, you know, I think the combination of um the judges thinking outside the square, we've seen some really interesting wines, you know, come through. And is there a component of kind of improving how the, that's communicated and how you actually talk about sort of oh, quality so. and style. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From my time in judging, the the I won't say old school judges, but the the way the judging worked was there were judges, sure. Then there were associates. Quite often, the associates had to do all the pouring as well as you know judging. Yeah, associates were uh, to be seen and not heard. Mm-hmm. Um, the judges were correct, and thanks for your time. Mm-hmm. Nowadays. You've got, um, say, you've got three judges and maybe two associates, but sometimes even three associates. Everyone's score gets looked at. Everyone gets, everyone has a voice. In the, the day, the panel chair's got to make a decision, but you've got six people putting, giving input into into these wines. Mm. That's it's got to be better. The wines are the wines. We cut down the number of wines we judge per day. Like when I first started, it wasn't unheard of to do 200 to 230 wines a day. Mm. But you could also say back then there was good wines and there were lots of bad ones. So it was pretty easy to sort out the you know um, good ones and bad ones. Um, now we're down to 120 wines, and, and they're all you know, every wine gets looked yeah. at really thoroughly. Yeah. So for people who are kind of interested in, I guess, finding out how wine show works and and how you know wine show judging, you know, works. Uh, obviously, there are lots and lots of different wine shows yep. from from you know the capitals into the regions. Into the region, yes. How would you actually suggest someone? Just try and kind of get involved. Um, right to the committee. Yeah. And uh, like you're applying for a job? Yeah. Then it's kind of helpful if you know someone from who's judging the wine show. And like Victoria's got a lot of wine shows mm. Ballarat, Yarra, the Victorian wine show itself. Um, now it's got the Chardonnay Challenge, et cetera. Um, and of course, culminating in um, Royal Melbourne. So if if you know someone, that's a big plus. Mm. Um, and then you know, just yeah, write off an, an application CV saying, you know, if I can't, I mean, I'm, so you've never done any, any judge, um, any judging. Okay, so I'm happy to be a steward. Yeah, of course. You know, happy to just go for free, pour wine. All wine shows need back of house. Yeah, and um, quite often, I know certainly at Sydney, um, in my when I was you know, there at Sydney Wine Show for 25 years, that, um, you know, one day an associate might be sick or something and we'd, we'd put a steward in for training purposes mm-hmm. and um, they get exposure that way. And if people would like to find out more about the Evans tutorial for, for this year? Go to the website. It's on the website, www.lenevanstutorial.com.au. Fantastic. Uh, Ian, I really do appreciate you making some time whilst you're here in Melbourne. Absolute pleasure. Um, would you like to uh, let the listeners know ways that they could um, 
uh, find out more about Broken Wood and also, you know, follow yourself on, on social media? Yes, yeah, indeed. I mean, Broken Wood's just launched its uh, revamped website, so you can, if you're interested in any of our wines, it's got a, it's an online uh, shop as well. Mm-hmm. But a lot of detail there on history. Um, if, if your listeners were questioning something I said, then it's probably in our history page on, <laughs> on our website, bios of, of, of all of us. As I say, an online shop, um, Broken Wood's on Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook. I'm personally on Twitter, Riggs BW, Instagram as Ian Riggs, um, and Facebook as well. So, uh, you know, we fully embrace social media. We love talking about wine. People probably get sick of us talking about wine, but it's a, it's a great industry to be in. And, and thank you very much for having me. Well, hopefully they don't get too sick. Otherwise, the, this podcast would cease to be. Yes, true. Uh, great and, stuff. And people can visit Broken Wood in Hunter Valley as well. Indeed. Yep. Great cellar door there. And, um, wines from all over. But, you know, look for uh, the wines uh, in retail down here. Uh, they are, they are, we are getting more and more traction in the on-premise as well. Mm. So uh, Certainly for all of the listeners in Sydney, you should yeah. have no problems finding Broken Wood. No, Broken Wood's everywhere in Sydney. Fantastic. Thanks again. Absolute pleasure. As always, guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And, of course, thank you to Ian for being on the show. Uh, you can follow me on social media, on, on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Intrepid Wino. And you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino is where you'll find my Facebook page. So please hit that like button. Uh, and that way you can uh, see all the things that I share on there. Uh, I'd love for you to come and visit me at uh, the, on the Intrepid Wino channel on YouTube. Uh, and you can see some of my Let's Taste wine tasting videos where I share my impressions of different Australian wines. And, of course, I really would love for you to subscribe to the podcast on any different podcast sharing app. Uh, Give the podcast a rating and a review and and share your experiences of the podcast. Uh, You can find all that information at intrepidwino.com as well as lots of different writings that I've done in the past. Uh, I look forward to having you on future episodes of the podcast. I've got some great guests coming up. Uh, But until then, bye.